Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Cara, acne can be tough. Whether your kid is just starting to get breakouts or has been struggling with them for years, there's a great product that can help. Phyla is the ultimate game changer. It tackles acne right at its root cause, rebalancing the skin's bacteria and packing it with probiotic phages. Phyla harnesses the superpowers of probiotics, tiny warriors targeting and wiping out the acne-causing bacteria. In studies, Phyla slashed acne-causing bacteria by a whopping 90%. Phyla doesn't just fix acne you can see. It stops new breakouts in their tracks. It has no harsh chemicals and won't irritate or dry most skin. Phyla's three-step system is like a dermatologist-approved magic potion. Cleanse, apply serum, and moisturize twice a day. As a special treat for our listeners, you can grab 25% off your first order of Phyla. Head over to phylabiotics.com, enter code PUBERTY at checkout, and kickstart your family's journey to acne-free skin. Check out the link in our show notes for quick access. Hi, I'm Cara Natterson. And I'm Vanessa Cole bennett Each week, we dive into the what and how of raising kids through puberty, that roller coaster of physical and emotional shifts for kids and parents alike. Combining reliable science and relatable parenting strategies, we will all learn about, laugh about, and yes, maybe even cry about adolescence, ours and theirs. Vanessa, I'm so excited about this episode. Me too. We think you are all going to love this conversation with Dr. Lisa Damore, who is a regular on this podcast and full disclosure, has become a friend to both of us. She's an incredible, incredible voice about the emotional lives of teenagers. And that is the book that she has just written that is out today. And that is the conversation we are having with her. By way of background, Lisa went to Yale and then she worked for the Yale Child Study Center. And then she got her PhD in clinical psychology at the University of Michigan. Her accolades are a mile long. Let's start with two bestsellers. I think she's about to have a third, but two bestsellers in the form of the books. Untangled, which many of you have read, I'm sure, and the follow-up Under Pressure. This conversation is about the emotional lives of all teenagers. So it's a bit of a departure for Lisa, who has really focused a lot of her work on the lives of adolescent girls. She has now spread her light to include all genders. And we have both learned so much from Lisa over the years that we have known her and read her work. And 
we have no doubt that all of you will learn a lot from this conversation and from her new book. So enjoy. Hi, Lisa. Vanessa, how are you? I'm so happy to see you. I am delighted to be with you. And hey, Cara, glad to be with you. Yeah, this is wonderful. This is like old home week for me. I love it. (laughs) Listeners, if we sound giddy, it's because we are. We are so excited to interview Dr. Lisa Damore all about her new book, The Emotional Lives of Teenagers. Can you guess what it's about? It's a pretty literal title. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's out today. I could not be more excited to have it out in the world. And I really hope that families find it useful. Well, if they read one word of it, they will, <laughs> because it is really, it is the first book that I can remember that really walks through the emotional lives of teenagers in a very sort of clear, understandable way with a lens on how the kids experience their lives and a lens on how the parents or the adults in those kids' lives experience their side of the equation. And that's, you know, that's your secret sauce, Lisa, is that you work directly with kids and families. So you're able to share both perspectives. But this is, I just don't remember reading a book ever that gives this kind of insight. And one other little point, which I think will help people is, it is a manageable size. And then that becomes important because sometimes people are overwhelmed by the amount of information they're going to get. So what you're going to get is an unbelievably jam-packed, but readable, manageable book. So with no further ado, let's just jump into what you do and what you say. And we're going to talk in and around your book, but also just about your incredible knowledge. You've been doing this for a very long time. And um, some things I'm sure will come out in this podcast that are not in the book. So Vanessa, you want to kick it off? So the overarching theme of the book is kind of in contrast to what if you asked almost any parent in America, what do you hope for your kid? Or what do you want for your kid? They would say, I just want my kid to be happy. But Lisa, in a way you're telling us that's actually not totally what we should want for our kids, that there are goals and aims that are slightly different in terms of our kids' emotional lives. So what should we be hoping for, wishing for, for our kids? So this is like not nearly as sexy or compelling as I want my kid to be happy, but I think I would have it be something like, I want my kid to be able to maintain a sense of equilibrium in the face of disruptive emotions. (laughs) There's a reason that's not gotten a lot of traction. Is there an acronym we could come up for? Tighten that up a little bit. I have nothing against, I'm nothing against kids being happy, right? I have two daughters. I want them to be happy. Of course I do. What I worry about, and I don't worry a lot. Like I, I have, like you mentioned, like I've been at this a long time. I got my PhD 26 years ago, right? I mean, I've seen a lot. I'm pretty able, I think, to take things in stride, to keep them in perspective. What I worry about is we have come to a place where that idea of happiness, where that idea of feeling good or calm or relaxed or at ease has become equated with being mentally healthy. And that's a problem. Because you guys have kids, I have kids, you know, I know that 
they are up and down all the time, right? I mean, they can start the day happy and then something invariably is going to make them upset. That's a done deal. If we are now concerned that my no longer happy kid might have a mental health concern, then we are unnecessarily terrified. We are not able to be as helpful to our kids as we should be. We are scaring them. I set to work on this book when I could see where the headlines were going post-COVID, where there's a lot of worry about adolescent mental health, as there should be. But there's also a lot of rolling up adolescent distress and adolescent mental health concern into the same breath. And my job in this book is to tease those two things apart. Which is so key because even though Vanessa and I talk about adolescence and the adolescent brain constantly, even we as parents, when we take off our professional hat and put on our parenting hat, and you write about this actually, which I love because so do you, we all fall prey to the same worry. So you know, one of our kids might come home and have had a really crappy day. They got a bad grade on a test. They got cut from a team. They didn't get a part they wanted in a play, whatever it was, maybe two of those things. And even though we rationally know that they are getting through those experiences with healthy emotions, this sort of song is playing in the back of our head of your child might be desperately worried, sad, empty, void, and you need to go. Like I find myself, Lisa, sometimes going and knocking on my kid's door and checking on them to make sure they're okay when they've had a bad day because that's the script that's playing in my head, right? That's what the world has told me. Your kid might not be okay behind that closed door when really what they're having is a healthy, normal emotion. And how about, Cara, when they don't answer the knock at the door Oh, my God, right? I mean, we'll get into this later, Lisa about our role in all of this. But you talk about that mental health doesn't mean feeling good. Mental health means having the right emotions at the right time. Can you unpack what that means for us, particularly in the context of the hormonal stew of the adolescent brain? Okay, so I'm going to frame this by saying something that may sound radical and is not. Your child being in distress is often evidence of your child's mental health. So what I mean by that is, if your kid doesn't study for a test and bombs it and is upset with themselves, they are having the right reaction. If your kid likes somebody who doesn't like them back and they really, really like that person and that really person really doesn't like them back and they are heartbroken, they are having the right reaction, right? I could give 40 examples of 40 other negative emotions. What I work to do in the book is to bring distress back into the fold of normalcy and actually navigational system, right? Kids can figure out what they want to do more of or less of based on how things feel. And when things feel bad, that is informational. When things feel bad, they grow, right? There's so much to be said on behalf of psychological distress in teenagers and treating it as something that is unavoidable and often, this is so strange to say, welcome and important, but You're getting at something, though, that is so true. We can know that theoretically. When your kid is having a full-on meltdown in your house, this does not feel like a good thing. And Mm -hmm. one of the really kind of fun journeys I've had as a writer is that I wrote Untangled before either of my daughters was a teenager. So that book is really straight up 100% about my experience as a clinician. 
And then under pressure came in in a midway point. And now the emotional lives of teenagers comes out when I've got a fully launched college kid and another kid who's an adolescent. And so this book, and, and Carl, you gestured at this, we've done a lot more in my experience of mothering adolescents. And I will say, and this is not in the book, it is terrifying at times. I mean, the strength of their distress. And, you know, there have been moments in parenting where I would think, if I did not do this for a living and have all of these ways to be reassured that my kid's okay, I would be calling everyone I know, asking if this is okay. I would be losing tons of sleep, which isn't to say I've never lost sleep. But I feel so much empathy for parents about what it means to have the sheer force of adolescent emotionality living in their house. If you listen to enough of our episodes, you'll hear us preach the importance of air, particularly down there. Airing out body parts reduces sweatiness, stinkiness, and skin irritation. And it feels amazing to air it all out after a long day in tight, sweaty clothes. Which is why we created the Oom Short. Super soft, lightweight, with wide legs and a low crotch. All help air flow. Designed for all genders in all sizes, literally down to kids extra small and up to men's extra large. Everyone who wears them tells us they've never been so comfy. Get your shorts at myoomla.com. Vanessa, we literally have three minutes to eat lunch every day. I am not joking. And the challenge is how to make it delicious and healthy and still fit into that tiny window. Our answer is Factors Ready to Eat Meals. They have been a godsend. We throw our Factor meals in the microwave. It takes two minutes and out comes a gorgeous, fresh, never frozen meal. We both love the tamale vegetarian one. It's delish. There's a ton of options every week. There's 60 add-ons, breakfast, snacks, beverages. I love doing the wellness shots with my kids. They think it's hilarious. And I know they're getting vitamins and minerals in their bodies. So get meals on your table or at your desk in two minutes or less. Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, and cleaning. You can customize with flexibility to get as much or as little as you need, and you can press pause or reschedule depending upon your lifestyle. So to order, go to factormeals.com slash puberty50 and use the code puberty50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That code is puberty50 at factormeals.com slash puberty50 to get 50% off your first box, 20% off your next box. And I am going to go do that right now because I need more factor meals in my refrigerator. Cara, lately I have been lying awake at night. I'm physically exhausted, but I can't sleep because my mind is so wired with everything going on between work and my family. So I've added magnesium breakthrough to my nightly routine and it actually helps calm my mind. It helps me get better sleep and I wake up feeling better rested. I'm less cranky and I'm more patient with my family and with you. Oh, I've noticed. And it's because unlike other magnesium supplements that might give one or two formulations of magnesium, magnesium breakthrough has seven. That's why you're sleeping so well and waking up refreshed. 
Now, dietary supplementation is always best, Vanessa. So that means eating your minerals and vitamins is the best way to get them in. But if you can't or you don't get enough, magnesium breakthrough is the way to go. It can also help digestion, though too much helps your digestion too much, which is not a good thing. It can support muscle recovery. So bye-bye, Charlie Horses. And it helps build dense bones, which is especially important for women approaching and in menopause. We have an exclusive offer for our listeners. You can go to buyoptimizers.com slash puberty, B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S.com slash puberty. And you can use the code PUBERTY10 during checkout to save 10%. That promo code is PUBERTY10 at buyoptimizers.com slash puberty. Your body and brain and family and business partner will thank you. Cara, my kids love Magic Spoon cereal. And even though it's cereal, they actually love it as a homework snack. The variety pack has four flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. And fruity is the favorite flavor in my house. Now, this pack has zero grams of sugar, between 13 and 14 grams of protein, and between four and five grams of net carbs per serving. It's made with wholesome ingredients, no artificial flavors or dyes, and it's high in protein, gluten-free, grain-free, and soy-free. So a great choice, Vanessa. You can go to magicspoon.com slash puberty to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our, you guessed it, promo code puberty at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident you're going to love their product. It's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they will refund your money. No questions asked. They do not want you to send their cereal back to them. Try a bowl of Magic Spoon cereal today at magicspoon.com slash puberty and use the code puberty to save $5. When you talk to kids and you're in a classroom or in a one-on-one clinical setting, Mm -hmm. how do you describe this to them? Like, is there something where you're honoring their feelings and listening to what they're saying and helping them manage it, but also helping them to understand the way that the adults in their lives might be receiving Mm. the information they're putting out into the universe? And is that an important thing for kids to understand their role in that? Or should kids just be feeling? And should adults be the ones to adult around this and modulate their responses to their kids' feelings? I think it's the second one. I think here's the thing. When you're a teenager having a big fat emotion, like you actually probably are not neurologically capable of simultaneously considering how that's landing on the adult and making a change, right? Like that's probably not. Nor is that your job. Nor is that your job. Yeah. But one of the things I have thought about this book is my job is to serve as a containing function for parents so parents can serve as a containing function for their kids. Mm. Like that's the game here, right? Like, so not game. Teach the teacher. Yeah. Yeah. And just, and create this sense of like, my goal as a psychologist is to say, a lot of this is normal. A lot of this is expectable. Here's a whole set of tools for how to react. Here's when it is time to worry. I find it's actually greatly reassuring people if you're like, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, worry now, right? Like the distinction so my goal in my work is to provide enough information that parents can feel, I know this sounds like a strange way to say it, held by me so that when their kid is having a meltdown that results in a fetal position on the kitchen floor over 
things that people usually don't even remember six hours later what it was. But in that moment, it is so harrowing that they can actually feel steady and sturdy and like they have a set of tools available to them if they need it. So let's dive into that a little bit because you talk about emotions as data, helping kids see their emotions as data, which is like, I love the kind of inversion of that concept because having spent my life having people tell me not to be so emotional and be more rational and more logical, I can now be turn around and be like, well, actually, this is data. But again, when they're elevated, when they're emotional, when they're angry, when they're silent, when they're whatever that kind of extreme is, we can't tell them in that moment. So what does it sound like? What does it look like as we're clocking that what's happening is data, but like we got to deal with it in the in the moment and go back? So I don't know, let's pick a scenario, right? You've got a 14-year-old boy who comes home from school and is just rip-roaring, furious because the tests they took, there were questions on the tests that they weren't taught in class and it was so unfair. And now they think they're going to bomb the test, but it's really the teacher's fault because the teacher didn't teach those particular things and half the test was on it, right? Does that sound familiar? I've never heard anything like that. Exactly. So... We've got an angry, upset kid in front of us. What do we do, Lisa? What does it look like? What does it sound like? Okay. So one of the goals I had in this book was to introduce an idea that we use constantly in psychology, but has not done a good job of making its way into the popular culture, which is when you have an incredibly intense emotional moment, you actually have two sets of tools you can pull on to help you get through it. One of those sets of tools is helping kids find relief by expressing their emotions. The other set of tools is helping kids find relief by bringing those emotions back under control. In the culture right now, we talk a lot about expression, you know, getting kids talking, getting kids sharing what's on their minds. We actually don't talk nearly enough about helping kids rein it back in. And I will tell you, as psychologists, we see these on equal footing. And my aim in the book was to bring these across on equal footing. So the first thing I would say is, that boy who is having his rant, is the ranting providing the relief he needs? And often it does. You know, if Mm. you just let a kid have it out, like they will spend their energy and feel better having just said it all. If that works, great. Then you can go on to step two, which is trying to figure out how to use that emotion for, you know, data. If he is ranting and ranting and ranting and actually ramping himself up, feeling the worse as he goes... You then need the second set of tools, which is helping him bring it back under control. The ongoing expression is now turning into rumination. It is now turning into actually making him feel worse. So an entire chapter of the five in the book is devoted to helping kids get stuff back under control. Does he need to do something that comforts him? Does he need a temporary distraction? Does he need to get serious about problem solving, right? Like there are all of these things that we can support. The goal is to get the feeling to a level that is manageable so that it can be data. So you either get there because expressing does its job or you get there because reining it in is sufficient. Once it is there, once it is there, like, okay, the kid's mad about the test, right? That's data. That's the information. And it's now a size that we can work with. What I am thinking about in the book, I quote a dear colleague of mine, another clinician here in Shaker Heights named Terry Tobias, who taught me this. She's like, you know, emotions, they are like one member of our personal board of directors, right? We have a board of directors that helps us run our lives. And so like your emotions have a seat on the board, also on the board, like our obligations to people, ethical concerns, time concerns, like any variety of things. And the thing that she says that's so key is they're on the board. They're not the chair of the board. 
And so that's really where we want to start to take this, which is, okay, there's an issue that's really upset this kid. Now, all sorts of other factors should come into play as he thinks about his next move, right? Is everybody having the same problem with the teacher? You know, is there, you know, some other force at play here? It's not that his upset doesn't matter, but his upset should not probably drive the train for what happens next. So that's how I think we can bring in emotions of data, but they have to be at a reasonable size to do that. One of the things you also talk about is not trying to problem solve away every single sort of accusation or trigger, right? So in this example, you could see a hundred different ways in which I, as the parent, might try to answer the accusations being hurled to solve the problem. And can you walk us through what a better way to do that might be, what active listening looks like and sort of how that works? Wait, Car, you mean it doesn't sound like either A, I'm sure you didn't study properly and that's why you didn't know the answer to the question, or B, I'm going to email the head of the upper school about that teacher because that teacher is clearly not doing it. You mean those aren't the two responses <laughs> that we, we give that child? <laughs> I suppose those two are on the table, but Lisa, do you have a better response for us? <laughs> I'm going to take them off the table. <laughs> Just <laughs> take you. them off the table. That's, that's a different table. Yeah. We don't want to sit at that we table. We don't want to put that. Okay. Because they don't work, right? right? This is the thing. If they worked, they'd be on the table. If your kid was like, oh, I'm so glad you gave me that input about what I should have done differently. Like, absolutely. About if, how wrong my teacher about how wrong, is. Yeah, yeah. And also, you know, making an end run and, and, you know, reaching out to the school instead of having the child try to advocate for themselves. Like, you know, that also doesn't work. So I say it with no judgment, no values beyond like, if it works, great. If it doesn't, we got to come up with other options. So I do get in the book to how to give advice to a teenager. It comes really late in the book. And that section of the book really gets into how hard this is to do, how rarely it is what they are looking for, and how if you're going to do it, you have to do all sorts of things first. You have to do all sorts of things first. So first, you really have to listen then you really have to empathize. Then you really have to validate their experience. Then you have to, I would say, knock on the door. You have to say, I have some ideas about what might make a difference here. Do you want to hear them? Usually we just barge through the door with our wisdom and we are an uninvited guest and that's annoying to teenagers. And however brilliant our ideas are, they're not welcome. Then we have to wait for the kid to say, yes, I'm interested. They do not always say, yes, I'm interested. And I want to hear your wise advice. And I want to rest on that for a minute because I could see it feeling very frustrating as a parent. If you're like, well, I have some ideas. Do you want to hear them? And the kid's like, no. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) Why this is not a total loss is that you've basically established your kid's not helpless. And if your kid would like to try some things to make it better, they are available. So often what we're up against in the most painful conversations we have with our teenagers is their sense of helplessness. That they're like, I tried this, I tried this, I tried this, I tried this. You know, we offer other brilliant ideas. They're like, yeah, that won't work. That won't work. What's underneath that is helplessness. And often we have to name it to say, oh man, you're feeling really helpless. That's got to feel really lousy. So even that interaction where the kid just like, you know, shoves away the offer of advice, it's still a win because you're basically like, you feeling helpless is now 
on you, right? There are solutions available. If the kid is like, okay, what do you got? Now you can finally, having followed all of these other steps carefully, have an even shot of being useful. But we got to be careful. You taught me a very long time ago a phrasing of that question that I have used. I've used it not often because its power is in not being a broken record. But you taught me to say, are you asking for advice or are you asking for me to listen? Mm. And that question is extraordinarily powerful. And as my kids have gotten older, it lands better and better each time because they do feel valued. They do feel like what I'm saying is you've got this if you want this or I can help you. And sometimes they circle back a day or a week or a month later and they say, you know, and actually now I'm asking for advice. But I want to go back to something you said at the very beginning of that list because you skated over it and you don't skate over it in your practice, in life, in your writing, which is the listening part. And so I just thought... Could we take a second to shine a big, fat, bright light on what listening really looks like? And you use a term in the book, Lisa, I think it's called like, give them the headline or encapsulate the headline. And Mm -hmm. it's a kind of a, it's like the version of what we did when they were little, where we narrate back to them kind of what they're experiencing or seeing, or even I had a kid who I had to repeat back to him exactly what he had said to me, except he spoke without consonants at that stage. In his life. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like, you know, interpreting another language, but you talk about giving back to them the headline of what they just mm-hmm. told you. Mm-hmm. Let's do that. So let's yep. do that with the teenager who comes home with the unfair bombed test. What would you say in response to that kid? Or first, like, what does it look like? You got your phone in your hand, you got your cooking dinner, you're going like, so (laughs) maybe set the stage of everything but the words and then let's go to the words. Okay. But I'm going to even zoom the camera out further here. Oh, good. Okay. Good. So here's the thing. It is really hard to just listen, right? I can say to families, you know, it's going to really work if you really listen carefully to your kid. I can say to myself, your job is to just listen. It's enormously hard to do. And what's hard is that our wanting to come up with great solutions and offer them muscles, just get going. We also kind of want it to stop. We want to bring it under control. So let me say two things just to help people open themselves. And I use to open myself to the idea of just listening. First of all, your kid talking about the things that are upsetting them is in and of itself a therapeutic act. Saying the words about, I feel angry, I feel frustrated, I feel anxious. The verbalization of an emotion actually brings that emotion down to size. So part of what helps me to listen is knowing the fact that my daughter is telling me she's upset actually makes her less upset. So that helps me. Then to keep my mind from going down the problem-solving road, the strategy I use is I call it headlining. And what I imagine is that as my kid is telling me what's upsetting to her, I visualize that she is my reporter, I am her editor, and she is reading me the article of her distress. And my job is when she gets to the end of the article to try to produce the headline for the article, to try to distill it completely, add nothing, but get it right. This is very mentally taxing and taxing enough that it actually keeps you from moving into problem-solving mode because it's really hard to do that kind of distillation. 
And I'll give an example. I usually blow it. I usually can't come up with something or what I come up with is off base and that's still not a loss. And I can say why. Here's an example of when I didn't blow it. It was in March of 2020, the pandemic had just come down on everyone. My older daughter was in the 10th grade. About two weeks in, she started to get the scope, the sense of what was really happening and how bad it was going to be and how long it was going to last. And she just had a rant. Like I remember where we were standing and she was like, oh my gosh, like they took away lunch and they took away sports and they took away meetings and they took away, you know, dances and they took away clubs. They took away all the stuff that makes school fun. And they left us tests and APs and lectures and, you know, homework. She said they took away all the stuff that makes school fun and they just left us school, you know, and she just went on and on and on. And I, I really, I was a good editor that day and I listened, listened. And when she was done, I said, Oh man, it's like school is all vegetables and no dessert now. And she said, yes. And we were done. Like she had felt heard. And so that headlining strategy, if you get it, fantastic. Even if you don't get it, your child will sense the fullness of your focus. Your child will sense that you are really concentrating on trying to capture and distill what they are saying. I want parents to hear that is a therapeutic act. That alone will do a huge amount of good. You have one other strategy that's uh, tangentially related to this that I get wrong every single night. And I'm just going to, I'm going to share it here. I'm going to air it here. You talk about when kids come into their parents' room at night oh my and the God. parents are in bed and the, that's when the kids open up and start talking. And that is that is truth in my house, right? That it's even better than the car is when I am in bed. And what you say, I'm going to do a little spoiler alert here, but what you land on is that it's the fact that the parents are in bed and they're not getting out of bed that puts the kid in control of the conversation. And when the conversation's over, the kid leaves the room. Here's where I screw it up, Lisa. I'd say more than 50% of the time, I'm actually not exactly done. And I will get out of bed and go back <laughs> and I'll be like, okay, but one more thing. And No, you don't. Right? And, no, and, you don't. No, I cannot I, believe you get out of bed. Okay. First of all, it's like 8.30. Okay. Let's just contextualize. <laughs> yeah, listeners, Cara goes to bed at like 7.15. She goes to bed at like the same time as like my I six-year-old I believe in did. sleep, people. <laughs> but um, that note was huge for me because I do think part of the art of listening, it seems to me to be the art of understanding the context in which they can be heard. And that was a really great description of a context where they feel in control. And I am never getting out of bed again. Like I got it. It was hammered home because it gives them the agency in the yep. conversation. The other strategy that I carry with me all the time from you is the concept of like, that stinks. Mm -hmm. I'm less refined than you are. So I say that sucks. But <laughs> the sort of offering up just little lovely phrases of empathy when mm -hmm. you're not in solving mode, when mm -hmm. maybe you've given the headline, when you're kind of still there helping them to kind of come down from wherever they are and you have this, you know, active empathy. Can you talk mm -hmm. a little bit about that, Lisa? Because it is such a powerful reminder of how little we actually have to do or say to help kids feel heard. So I love that stinks. And I learned it from a kid in New Jersey. I was um, speaking at a school and I was 
talking to the entire upper school and I said, I'm going to see your folks tonight. Is there anything you want me to tell them? And this ninth grade girl, I tell the story in the book, you know, raised her hand and she's like, oh yes, oh yes. You know, could you please, 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 at the end of the day, when I tell my parents about my day, the only thing I want them to say back to me is, oh man, that sucks, right? Like, so she also was with you on the use of sucks. And it was such a valuable thing to have a student just so perfectly articulate. So here's what's at work in these moments. If it's therapeutic to talk about a feeling, it's then another layer of therapeutic to have a loving person say, oh man, I hear you. I'm so sorry, or that stinks, or I hate that that happened. And I use the term therapeutic very deliberately. Like I really tried to make this book a DIY for what's appropriate to do at home. So I'm not turning people into therapists, but there's a lot of good therapeutic containing work parents can do. And so I spend time on the power of empathy to actually get feelings back under control. There's something else altogether at work here that is so important. So while we are doing empathy and we're getting the therapeutic value of that, simultaneously what we aren't doing is overreacting or responding from fear. Because that's the other road we can go down in those moments where a kid tells us about something very upsetting and they can sense that we are scared, that we are trying to whack-a-mole it, that we want it to go away as quickly as possible. And when we're empathizing, we're not suggesting that. We're saying, well, I hear the feeling. I'm interested in the feeling. You can tell me all about the feeling. And it doesn't make me terribly uncomfortable, but I'm really you know, very much in touch with feelings sad for you. When they can sense our discomfort, like you're telling me a feeling and now I'm scared and now I'm not trying to figure out who to call or now I'm trying to make it go away. The impact on the adolescent is that is frightening because their experience is, I thought this was a 14-year-old size problem and I've now told my 52-year-old mom and she is having a strong reaction. So this may be way bigger than I thought it was because the middle-aged lady who has seen a lot and been around is now reacting very strongly. So it actually can accelerate the distress in the teenager. So the beauty of empathy is that it's what you are doing and it's also simultaneously what you're not doing when you are exercising empathy. You are offering support through a therapeutic kind of loving communal and you are not scaring your kid by becoming more frightened or more upset about the situation than they are. And is there also a version of as kids get older and they recognize the relative largeness or not of a situation, when we overreact, we then lose our credibility because they sort of kind of go, no, I'm venting to you, but this is, this is not the biggest thing in my life. Right. And so there's that side of the coin too, where if we, if we go from zero to a hundred on everything, not only are we increasing their distress, but we're also undermining our own ability to prove that we're good judges. Yeah, I think absolutely. And I think it's hard because teenagers put in front of us things that can, you know, drugs, alcohol, kids going to parties, right? I mean, stuff that it's very hard as a parent. You feel like, am I doing my job if I don't like, you know, make a huge statement in this moment? But Cara, you're exactly articulating that tension between we want our kids to understand safety concerns and how serious they are and how grave they are. But we also don't want to react so strongly to everything that they're like, you're treating vaping like heroin. Those are two different things. I don't know how to use you as a good measure of how scared I should be. You know, and of course, they're also working with their own data sets. 
they've seen a lot of things that we haven't seen. And so when we say, you know, you touch that thing, you will burst into the flames. They're like, except for the five kids who I know who just did it last weekend, and they seem to be fine. So, you know, maintaining our credibility while also making sure we're being really clear and honest about safety concerns, I think is one of the toughest dances in parenting. I want us to wrap with one final piece of advice from you, Lisa, which is around, you talk about getting emotionally granular or Mm. granular with emotional expression and helping kids drill down on their language. So I like to say that like adolescents have two words in their vocabulary. One is weird and one is annoying. And it's Mm. like every situation that they complain about or person is either weird or annoying. (laughs) How do we help them build the skill, right? We're no longer in the days of feelings charts where we can have them point. I wish we did. I wish we all walked around with a feelings chart in our back pockets, but we don't. How do we help them kind of parse and get more sophisticated and more granular about that so that we can both still sit there and listen and also get them to build those skills of specificity? So we have... Incredible research showing that the more granular the description of emotion, the more therapeutic the act of actually talking about it is. Like the more specific you get, the more power you get out of talking about emotions for reducing their intensity. It's it's an amazing thing. Fascinating. So when you're describing kids having two words for talking about, you know, people, this is, you know, I'm going to, this is a caricature and I know it, but you could almost say at times kids have two words for talking about feelings, anxious or depressed. Okay. Now there's concerns about those words because those are also diagnostic terms. And so I think it gets back to where we started, which is there's a real muddying of where does everyday experience end and where does diagnostic concerns begin. And part of what's muddied that is the heavy use of diagnostic terminology in everyday discourse in the culture and then also among teenagers. So here's how I would have adults respond when a kid puts a word, a big, broad, generic term like I feel anxious, I feel depressed in front of the adult. And then I'm going to unpack why I want it done this way. The first thing I would have the adult say is, tell me more. Like, what's going on, right? They're telling you something and you need to pay attention and you want to hear. Then see what they say, right? They may say, I feel really anxious because I'm in a fight with a friend. Or I feel really anxious because we have this huge game coming up. So now you've got more information to work with, which of course, again, therapeutic just to be asking and listening and really being curious. It will also then help you come back around with something more precise than anxious. So you could say, you know, I get it. You might be anxious about being in a fight with your friend. I wonder if you're also feeling mad, right? That you're you're like, I see you and I raise you. I've listened so carefully that I actually can throw more, you know, kind of detail into that conversation. Now, what is really wonderful about this is, again, you're saying like, I'm not scared of feelings. In fact, I'm going to give you more to go on here. But you're also moving into this world where kids are, you know, invited to expand their vocabulary of the emotions they're experiencing and making it clear that you're there to continue to deepen that vocabulary. It's really useful to do this. And you didn't correct them, which is an easy pit to fall in. Oh, you didn't mean you're anxious. You meant you're sad. That's, That's not what you said. You did the improv and, right? Yeah. Uh, which is and genius. Also this. And what I would say, especially around the term anxiety, in my experience, what I feel like this generation of adolescents, and now having seen several waves of adolescents, often when they say they feel anxious, what they're saying is they don't feel calm. Mm. And 
anxiety is one item in the not calm bucket. There's a lot of other stuff in the not calm bucket. There is mad, there is apprehensive, there's nervous, there's worried, there's, you know, frustrated. Like those are all in the not calm bucket. So I would have adults listen for like, is there another version of not calm that is more specific than anxious? Now, if your kid is scared, if they're like, I haven't studied for this test and it's huge, I feel anxious and they're scared, I would say, wait, that is anxiety. (laughs) And you should start studying and you'll soon feel better. Get on it, buddy. It's not that they're never not anxious. It's not that they're never anxious. It's just that it's, it's a very generic term. Lisa, this is so wonderful. The book is like, I mean, your other two books are like my Bible. So now I have three Bibles. I don't know what that makes me, a, a heretic of some sort, a Lisa DeMora heretic. But this is so wonderful. And we are so grateful for you putting this out into the world and really defining for people stuff that feels sometimes undefinable or unapproachable and making it feel manageable. It is such a treat. And we hope that people will buy this book and keep it by their bedside table as we do with with all of your other but don't get out of bed don't (laughs) get out of bed but for (laughs) god's sakes cara stay in bed that's the whole point (laughs) just pick up lisa's book when you're tempted to get up and continue the conversation put it on my feet i I can't (laughs) move lisa we adore you thank you guys it's mutual thank you so much for having me Thanks so much for listening. You can follow us anywhere you get your podcasts or check out our Instagram at The Puberty Podcast. If you have questions or stories to share, email us at thepubertypodcast at gmail.com. And for more puberty info, check out myoomla.com or dynamogirl.com. Bye. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.